Scripture lesson this morning, Exodus chapter 5, beginning at verse 1 and reading through chapter 6 and verse 9. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, Let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task, each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the foremen of the sons of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, that they, yet they say to us, Make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, You are idle, you are idle. That is why you say, Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, You shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But my name, the Lord, I did not make, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the sons of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. 
I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the sons of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because, their broken, because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the word that you bring us bring to us this day, that it is indeed a timely word for us, for each and every one of us in our walk of faith. We pray that your spirit would direct us in the truth, and that we might be all the more resolved to further obey you, to pursue to, to pursue after righteousness and indeed to be faithful members in your kingdom and growing members in the body of Christ. Guide us and direct us for these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a television show back in the the mid-1980s and early 90s called Who's the Boss? Starring Judith Light as Angela Bauer, a New York executive, and Tony Danza as Tony Maselli, a retired baseball player who becomes Angela's housekeeper. Tony has a daughter, Samantha, and Angela, a son, Jonathan, and they live in their respective parts of the home, often frequented by Angela's mother, Mona. The show premiered on a Thursday night, which was famous back then as the night of the Cosby show, and then moved to Tuesday night, um, coming before or after Growing Pains, uh, starring Kirk Cameron. Who's the Boss was a sitcom that was generally funny, and but it, but it was built around this tension created by the interaction between Angela, Tony, and Mona uh, as various parameters were established, debated, and so forth. In the second episode, there's a conversation slash argument between Tony and Angela about who was going to watch the children that night. Tony was supposed to because Angela had a meeting, but then Tony scheduled a date with a woman who turned out to be Mona's psychology professor, so Mona agreed to watch the children for Tony. Angela canceled her meeting and came home early, thinking she needed to make to take Jonathan to a meeting at school, but it turned out to be the following week. So the discussion escalated to the point where Angela said to Tony, Who's the boss around here? Me or my mother? Or maybe it's you. Hence the premise of the show, as the title asks, Who's the boss? Well, the text before us this morning has something of, of, of this theme to it, even as we've hinted at in past weeks. And really, the larger narrative uh, takes us through chapter 7 and verse 13. Uh, but that seemed like too much to try to cover in one fell swoop, so we'll break it up over a couple of weeks. There's a chiastic structure to chapter 5, verse 1, through chapter 7, and verse 13. That seems to support this, which I'm borrowing and slightly modifying uh, and this whole section then leads up to the first of the ten plagues. And you can see the structure in the sermon notes on the back of the liturgy. So there's Pharaoh's show of power in chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. Pharaoh's servants in chapter 5, verses 5 to 21. Yahweh's revelation in 522 to 69. Then Yahweh's servants in 610 to 77. And Yahweh's show of power in chapter 7 in verses 8 to 13. And again, to break up into the text and the, the, the text into two parts takes a little away from the bit, uh, a little bit away from the, the flow of the narrative, but trust we'll be able to manage just the same. 
And also, since it's about a month since we've been in Exodus, let's review for a moment what took place in chapter 4. Yahweh gave Moses a word and sign, word and sacrament for his mission to Egypt, first to the elders of Israel. Uh, But then he also uh, gave Aaron, his brother, to accompany him in the mission. Yahweh is patient with Moses, and Moses obeys the command to go back, also asking permission from Jethro to return to Egypt. And Jethro sends him away with blessing, with a priestly benediction, go in peace. And then we consider that odd account that takes place at the lodging place when Zipporah circumcises her son, likely Gershom, and the bridegroom of blood imagery and language that's that's represented there, and how Moses and his family are basically undergoing a proto-Passover experience. On account of the blood, Yahweh leaves him alone. The the angel of Yahweh, the, the angel of death, passes over, as it were. And then we read about the instruction that Aaron receives from Yahweh to go and meet Moses in the wilderness, which they do at Sinai, where Moses informs Aaron of all the words of Yahweh and the signs he'd been commanded to do. And then, just like that, they're back in Egypt gathering the elders of Israel together. Aaron spoke all the words, did the signs in the sight of the people, and we're told the people believed. So there's some response of faith. Furthermore, when they found out Yahweh had visited them and seen their affliction, they bowed down their heads and worshipped. So far, so good. And what Yahweh told Moses was going to happen is taking place. The people believe the word and signs. But as we know from our text this morning, the people's new faith is immediately tested, isn't it? And we find Moses' faith being tested as well. But the Lord's answer, answer to Moses is instructive not only to Moses and the people of Israel, but also to us. And there's much for us to glean from this account. So let's begin to make our way through it. Chapter 5 begins by picking up where chapter 4 ends, indicating that after the meeting with the elders, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and made their request, stating, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, Send out my people so that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Now, a couple of things. There, There are some scholars who contend that Moses didn't do what Yahweh commanded back in 3.18. Because there Yahweh tells Moses, you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt. Furthermore, in 3.18, mention is made of a three-day journey into the wilderness in order to sacrifice. Whereas here in 5.1, Moses and Aaron state the journey was for a feast. There's even some contention over terminology and approach when comparing 3.18 and 5.1. But I'm inclined to think that the protests are trying to prove too much. Feast and sacrifice have a measure of interchangeability. And with the addition of Aaron, Moses and Aaron act as uh, the witnesses, even as we considered in weeks past. Interestingly enough, the elders of Israel aren't explicitly mentioned again until the Passover in chapter 12. Also in 3.18, Yahweh is clear to tell Moses that the king of Egypt wouldn't let them go unless compelled. So Pharaoh's refusal here isn't surprising. But more importantly, notice the claim that Yahweh makes about Israel, that they're my people. To whom do the people of Israel belong? Yahweh or Pharaoh? This directly ties in the question we asked at the outset of who's the boss? You know, who's got the power? Who's got the authority? And it's precisely this theme, this competition, that's played out until Exodus 14. But is immediately noted in Pharaoh's response in verse 2. Who is Yahweh that I should hear his voice to send out Israel? I do not know Yahweh, and thus Israel I will not send out. Earlier in Exodus, there was a pharaoh who did not know Joseph, 
And now there's a Pharaoh that doesn't know Yahweh. And what this indicates is that Pharaoh doesn't recognize him as a god or as any kind of authority to which he needs to submit. Moses and Aaron reply in verse 3, stating, The God of the Hebrews has met with us, which is an allusion to Moses' meeting with Yahweh at Sinai. And then they request to take a three-day journey into the wilderness in order to sacrifice to Yahweh, which exactly echoes 3.18. A three-day journey is used a couple of other times in Scripture. Back in chapter in Genesis 30, verse 36, referring to the distance Laban placed between him, between uh, Jacob and himself, in a section recounting Jacob's prosperity, which overlaps with Israel's prosperity in Egypt. And it's also used in Jonah to describe how long it takes to travel the great city of Nineveh. Uh, the Genesis 30 passage is the most closely related, but it's worth noting these, these instances of a rarely used phrase. But then notice what else they add. Lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. You know, what might be fresh in Moses' mind in particular? Well, the near death of his son on the way to Egypt. And pestilence and sword is what arguably will befall Egypt for not letting Israel go. There might be a sense that Moses and Aaron recognize that God is on the march. He's going to war, as these are two common characteristics of warfare. Then in verse 4, the king of Egypt basically asks why Moses and Aaron are keeping the people from their work, why they're causing production to slow down, and commands them to get back to their burdens, which is the same term used in 111 and 211. Pharaoh is calling the shots here. And, and overall, we should understand that Pharaoh is treating Moses and Aaron, and therefore Yahweh, in a dismissive manner, clearly rejecting the authority of Yahweh. Again, the question remains, who's the boss? Yahweh says, go sacrifice to me. Pharaoh says, go work for me. To whom will Israel listen? To whom do they belong? Which then brings us to our next section in verses 5 to 21. See, here, here it seems that Pharaoh's the one in control. And even calls the Hebrews the people of the land, which likely has connotations of possession, that they belong to Egypt and therefore belong to him, or even that they're slaves, servants, or even peasants, we might say. But notice something ironic that's to be heard in what the king says, uh, that the Hebrews, the people of the land, are now many. You know, this takes us back to chapter 1 when the numeric prosperity of Israel was concerned to the then king of Egypt as well. But still more recall that Israel was originally placed in Goshen in order to keep them separate from the Egyptians. And yet the king of Egypt seems to indicate that the people of Israel are everywhere. Pharaoh is even concerned that Moses and Aaron are causing the people to have a rest, a Sabbath, from their work, from their burdens. That's an interesting thing to start to think about, particularly as it will be later expounded upon at Sinai in the fourth commandment. But in verse 6 and following, things get exponentially worse for the sons of Israel. First, the continuing power struggle seems to be subtly demonstrated in the fact that the seven go commands that we read about, uh, Pharaoh has four of them and Yahweh has three. So Pharaoh appears to be in the lead. He, again, he appears to be the boss. Second, there are seven uses of the term for brick in this section, though one of them gets obscured in our English translations in verse 7. And then third, there are eight uses of the word for straw in this section. So over and over again, you're hearing commands to go and do this, go and make bricks, go and get your straw, etc. 
Well, in verse 6, Pharaoh takes immediate action in light of his conference with Moses and Aaron, and he commands the taskmasters, who we should understand to be Egyptians, and the foremen, who we should understand to be Israelites, that the straw that would have acted as a bonding agent for their brick-making would no longer be supplied to the Israelites. They now have to go and get the straw for themselves while also keeping up the same level of production of bricks. Apparently, the Egyptians were known for their fastidious record-keeping when it came to production. And Pharaoh makes a case that the people are idle, that they're not working hard enough since they're asking for time off to go and sacrifice to God. Pharaoh is even clear to say in verse 9, "...make heavy the work upon the men that they may do it and not regard words of lies." This seems to indicate that the Hebrew men were directly engaged in the slave labor that involved Pharaoh's building projects, which makes sense. Also, he seems to be referring to Moses and Aaron as speaking lies, and he plans to squelch their message by making the sons of Israel impossibly busy with work. And notice that Pharaoh is being portrayed as a builder. But is he a godly builder? You know, does he point forward to the likes of Solomon later in Israel's history? Not hardly. Rather, we're rightly reminded of Nimrod in Genesis 10 and the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11 and even where the Exodus story begins in chapter 1 where the sons of Israel built cities for Pharaoh. And in chapter 1 we read that the more the king oppressed them, the more they multiplied and spread abroad. Well, we find a similar pattern here again. Because as the, as the Israelites have to go searching for straw, what do we read in verse 12? So were caused to scatter abroad the people in all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. It's even quite possible that this tactic ultimately backfires, creating sympathy for the Israelites instead. You know, the Egyptians see how horribly they're being oppressed and just have some sympathy for, in just a general human sense. Well, the taskmasters and the foremen deliver the news that their supplies to make, has, uh, supplies to make bricks has decreased, but their production quotas remain the same. And the mantra of the taskmasters becomes, make your bricks to the king's new law, even though you have to get your own straw. And then notice what happens to the Israelite foreman in verse 14. They're beaten and asked why they haven't met their quotas as they have in the past. You know, they're given an impossible task, are faced with an impossible situation. There's no one at their disposal to help them out, or so they think. And this leads to an important detail uh, uh, leads to an important and telling sequence in verses 15 and 16. And went the foreman of the sons of Israel and cried out to Pharaoh, saying, Why do you put, why do you do thus to your servants? No straw is given to your servants. And yet bricks, they're saying to us, make. And behold, your servants are beaten, but your people are wrong. Now what phrase is repeated three times in those two verses? That is key. These foremen... These sons of Israel refer to themselves when speaking to Pharaoh as your servants. They're identifying themselves as belonging to Pharaoh. That's not an insignificant point. This is how they understand their identity. This is how they, be, you know, this is what and who they believe themselves to be. And perhaps we can show them some sympathy given the severity and difficulty of the situation and given the fact that they're, they've been oppressed for so long but it also seems to demonstrate a failure of faith on their part. Now, I want to be careful not to make too much of this, but it's interesting to consider that these are Israelites who are willing to act as foremen on behalf of Pharaoh. 
that they're willing to be liaisons on behalf of Egypt. You know, does that in and of itself indicate a level of compromise? Possibly. Maybe we shouldn't make too much of it, but it's still worth giving a thought or two about. Well, not surprisingly, Pharaoh doesn't really listen to their cries and basically says, go, no straw for you. Uh, You're still required to produce the same number of bricks. And in verse 19, we read that the foreman saw that they were in evil. They were were in an evil plight or circumstance to say you shall not lessen from your bricks the daily number on its day. Then what do we read in verses 20 and 21? And they encountered Moses and Aaron waiting uh, to meet them as they came forth from Pharaoh. And they said to them, Yahweh, look upon you and judge because you have caused us to stink in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of his servants and have given a sword in their hand to kill us. Now, for reasons we're not told, Moses and Aaron are waiting on these Israelite foremen as they come from their meeting. And what do they do? Well, they basically utter a formal curse against Moses and Aaron. They make an appeal to divine judgment. And notice the problem they cite. They've been made to stink. They've become odious. Now, interestingly enough, this same word is used in Genesis 34:30 when Jacob tells Simeon and Levi that their slaughter of the Shechemites has caused him to stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. In that case, it was a bad witness. So Jacob ended up moving. In this case, it might not necessarily be a bad thing to be a stench to an oppressive, tyrannical government. Later, the same term will be used in relation to the dead fish in chapter 7, decomposing frogs in chapter 8, and then later of worm-infested manna in chapter 16. So Pharaoh doesn't listen, but who does? Yahweh. You know, have the sons of Israel already forgotten that he's visited them and seen their affliction, causing them to bow and worship? Apparently so. The new affliction, the harsher treatment, the impossible demands of Pharaoh has them despairing and hopeless. Well, that brings us to our third and final section for this morning in the last two verses of chapter 5 and the first nine verses of chapter 6. And what is at the center uh, and turning point of this narrative? Yahweh's revelation. Chapter 5 concludes with Moses' response to the complaint and curse leveled against Aaron and him. And in turning to Yahweh, there may be a sense that he's acting in a mediatorial role uh, after a fashion, which we'll see Moses do again in the wilderness. But be sure to notice uh, and to note the, the theology that he expresses. <coughs> Moses turned to Yahweh and said, O Adonai, why have you caused evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has caused evil to this people and to cause to deliver you and to cause to deliver, you have not caused to deliver your people. There's this piling up of these, this terminology here. Well, first of all, notice that, that Moses addresses Yahweh as Adonai, which means Lord or Master. You know, Moses' loyalties are properly ordered. Yahweh is his master, not Pharaoh. But then notice that in verse 22, he states that Yahweh caused evil. And then in verse 23, that Pharaoh caused evil. So which is it, Pharaoh or Yahweh? Well, of course, the answer is both and Here we're presented with that tension of God's sovereignty over all things, that nothing is outside of his control, and the human responsibility or freedom to which the scriptures also teach. We'll counter this pattern again in references to Yahweh hardening Pharaoh's heart, even as the first instance of that was mentioned in chapter 4 and verse 21, but then later of Pharaoh hardening his own heart in chapter 8 and verse 32. It's both, and perhaps we'll unpack, unpack that more in due time. 
We hear Moses questioning why Yahweh bothered to send him, which, of course, echoes and reminds us of his reticence when Yahweh called him back at Horeb, at Mount Sinai. But notice what's the cause of the evil that Pharaoh has inflicted against God's people. Moses speaking to Pharaoh, Moses speaking to Pharaoh in Yahweh's name. Don't miss that. Perhaps another way we can come at this is to say that Yahweh's word, the demands which Yahweh is making, the commands of Yahweh are what stirs things up. Clearly, Pharaoh doesn't like Yahweh's demands and dismisses them. But on account of what's taking place, neither do the sons of Israel. And Moses even contends that Yahweh hasn't delivered as he'd said, basically stating that things have only gotten worse. Well, it's a pretty good rule of thumb that when God starts a work, things get worse before they get better. Why is that? Well, perhaps to cause his people to trust him more, to cast themselves upon him more in faith to deliver them, that they'll be sure that he's their only source for salvation. And that seems to be part of Yahweh's answer in chapter 6 and verse 1. And Yahweh said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. So Yahweh is telling Moses that he's going to orchestrate things in such a way that Pharaoh, who presently won't let them go on a three-day journey into the wilderness, is going to send them out, even drive them out. The Hebrew, Hebrew verb stem being used can reflect intensity. And so you get this picture of, 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 Pharaoh, of a Pharaoh who, who can't uh, wait to get rid of the Israelites quickly enough, which is exactly what's going to happen. Yahweh is going to act. That's the first part of his answer to Moses. The stage is set, but then notice how he, he backs up his claim. Notice the proof that he gives in verses 2 through 9. Now, in verses 2 through 5, he gives his name, declaring at the outset in verse 2, I am Yahweh, which is the first of four of these declarations in verses 2 through 9. But notice the connection that Yahweh makes to his name, the, the foundation that he lays here. In verse 3, he says that he appeared to the patriarchs as El Shaddai. Now, recall what does that name mean? Powerful promiser. And what was the promise that he made? To give them the land of Canaan, in which they'd sojourned, that their descendants would take the land. Yahweh is referring back to promises made to Abraham in Genesis 12 and 17, and promises made to Isaac and Jacob, echoing the same. And what else? that he's heard the groaning of the sons of Israel. Again, Pharaoh is ignoring their groaning. Yahweh doesn't. And he doesn't because he remembers his covenant. And, and don't get hung up on Yahweh saying that he revealed himself to the patriarchs as El Shaddai and not Yahweh, uh, because we read over and over again of the patriarchs referring to God as Yahweh. Um, so, so what does that statement mean? Or is there some kind of contradiction in the text? Well, no, there's not. But remember that the name Yahweh means covenant keeper. And see, now the time has come for Yahweh, the constant one, the covenant keeper, to keep his promises to the patriarchs through these sons of Israel by delivering them from Egypt and then take them to the promised land. God declares his memorial name, the one that establishes and confirms the covenants he previously cut because now the full implications will be manifest. 
Now I want you to appreciate what Yahweh goes on to say in verses 6 through 9, how he further supports his name, or again, how he, or better yet, how he details what his name means. One scholar notes that in verses 6 through 8, you have two I am statements that bookends seven I wills. But let's, let's break it down even a little bit more. In verse 6, Moses is to declare the message to the sons of Israel, I am Yahweh. And there are three things Yahweh will do. He will bring, deliver, and redeem. The burdens that we've been reading about since chapters 1 and 2 and, and, and again in 5, Yahweh will bring His people out from under that oppression. His, oak, his, his yoke is easy and His burden is light. Then Yahweh will provide deliverance from slavery. He'll set His people free. Set his, his people free. And then thirdly, He'll redeem them. And when we think about redemption, we often think about being saved from sin, and that's good and right. But redemption also involves the destruction of the enemy. Even as Yahweh indicates that His arm will be outstretched and He'll perform great acts of judgment, which is an allusion to the plagues that are coming. Put another way, we can think of redemption as... In, in this in this way and and you know it, it's a good thing when God's enemies and the enemies of His people get pounded into the ground. Next in verse seven, Yahweh appeals to relationship, His relationship with His people. I will take you to be My people. This is arguably marriage language, even as we see later at Sinai with the covenant that is made between Yahweh and Israel, and Israel becomes Yahweh's bride. But not only is Yahweh Israel's husband, but also her God. I am Yahweh, your God, who brings, he brings them out from under their burdens. That's, there's that language again. And then verse 8, Yahweh imparts blessing, and he will bring and give. He'll bring them into the land that he lifted up his hand to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and give it to them for possession. And he concludes, I am Yahweh. Again, what does that mean? I am covenant keeper. Now, verse 9 ends on a bit of a clunker. Moses speaks all of this glorious revelation to the sons of Israel, but they do not hear uh, or they do not listen to Moses from, and the language here is either shortness of spirit or impatience or anguish of spirit and cruel service. And this last term has been used often to to describe Israel's circumstances in Egypt. And while it could be that we're to be sympathetic to Israel's plight, um, the language may also be conveying that they're impatient, that they're weak in character on account of the corrupting effects of evil upon them. You know, they, they should be impressed by Yahweh, but similar to Pharaoh, they're not. They should believe His word, but they don't. So clearly the stage is set, and the emphasis upon the name of Yahweh is perfectly fitting since Yahweh is getting ready to deliver. Yahweh reveals himself in the crisis, and for wrath, the people of Israel will receive grace. In place of judgment, they're going to receive blessing. As we begin to consider some of the ways in which the narrative before us today further applies to us and our calling as the people of God, I want you to ask yourself something about Yahweh's revelation so far in chapter 6. Is there anything new? 
does Yahweh provide some new nugget of information that he hadn't previously revealed to Moses? No, not really. In fact, we can make the case that Yahweh basically repeats everything he said to Moses at the burning bush on Sinai in chapter 3. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 9 is simply a confirmation of chapter 3. You see, Moses doesn't need new information, nor does Israel for that matter. Rather, he needs reassurance of what he already knows to be true about Yahweh. He needs the repetition of the message of the truth that's already been spoken to him. And isn't that often the case for our faith as well? That we need to be reminded of what we already know to be true about our God and who He's revealed Himself to be to us. And consider that there's so much more for our faith. Even as we have the whole of Scripture, even the Word made flesh in Jesus Christ, who is I Am, and the fullness of Yahweh, the covenant keeper. Surely we need to know this Lord and to be steeped in His promises, to be thoroughly acquainted with His revelation to us in the Scriptures, which reveal His character, His attributes to us. And aren't we chiefly reminded of what we already know each week here in the Lord's service and why this time is so crucial and instrumental to our faith? And hearing the truth repeated and hearing the message of the gospel again and again, your faith is made stronger and your fortitude and perseverance are deepened. And as you read and hear the Exodus story, you should recognize that their story is your story and that the Yahweh of salvation, relationship and blessing is ultimately manifest in the Lord Jesus accomplishing the same for you. Still more, the God who has shown himself a faithful helper to his people in the past can be counted on in the future. And we can take great comfort and have great confidence in the truth that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. But another aspect of our text this morning, and perhaps one that challenges us a bit more, is to consider, how do you react to the Word of God? Do you dismiss it like Pharaoh, asking in your heart, who is this Jesus and what authority does he have over me? Are you willing to submit to his degree, to his decrees? Do you obey his commands? Or how do you react to God's word when it causes trouble for you? you know, do you have some measure of sympathy for the Israelite foreman? What's your response when God's word and the power of the state are opposed to one another? Do you compromise? You know, the foreman blamed Moses and Aaron for their woes, but they were simply Moses and Aaron were simply speaking the truth Yahweh told them to declare. And how is it that they are held responsible for the response of wicked and tyrannical men? And that almost sounds like a line of argument we'd hear someone make today, doesn't it? Well, if you hadn't been protesting at that abortion clinic, then the pro-abortionists wouldn't have gotten violent or some other such nonsense. Sadly, even disturbingly, sometimes the truth leads to violence. Let's ask our Christian brethren in Muslim-ruled countries or those in India or China. And as parts of our own culture continue to pursue evil, then we shouldn't be surprised to find violent reaction, reactions to Christ's exclusive claims. Well, let's come at it from a slightly different angle. What do we make of the German Christians, particularly leaders, who went along with Hitler's persecution rather than stood up against him? Have there been cases of similar, similar ethical dilemmas in our own country in recent times? 
Have there been church leaders of one stripe or another who have promoted the state's agenda in a manner that compromised God's word, maybe even under the guise of loving your neighbor? Now, here we are four days into Pride Goeth Before a Fall Month, and in what ways have some portions of the church compromised God's word, thinking it's you know, better to go along with the powers that be? Jesus is ruling and reigning. He's the boss. And the answer to tyrants is faith. Trusting in God's word. Believing that the way of obedience to his commands is the way of life and blessing. There's no salvation in anyone else. Jesus Christ is the only name under heaven whereby men must be saved. And it's in his strong name, the name that reflects his character and his promises, in which we hope and trust, the name that is above every name, the constant covenant keeper. And still more, on this Trinity Sunday, surely it's good to be reminded of the covenant that God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has made and continues to keep and brings to pass. Even as His name is placed upon us as we bear it to the world as His servants. And yes, things may get worse before they get better. But let us be renewed in our faith in our God this day as He gives us His word and His signs that testify to the reality in which we're called to live to His glory and praise. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do ask that you would direct our faith to see Christ our Savior and King who is ascended and ruling and reigning over all things until all enemies are placed under His feet. May we walk forward in faith into this future and may we know that our Savior has gone before us and that you supply us with all that we need in the Word and in the sacraments and even through the Holy Spirit and through the body of Christ. Direct our faith to these things and may we pursue the life of righteousness and obedience all the more. To your honor and glory, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.